This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. Sandra Collins, the eldest of six children, had a hard-earned reputation as a kind and thoughtful person. Not only had she always kept an eye on her siblings and helped to look after her mother, who suffered from epilepsy, but for over a decade she'd worked as her aunt's full-time live-in carer. Sandra was a quiet, unassuming sort, who mostly kept to herself. But even so, she was a familiar face in the small seaside village of Killala, in County Mayo on the west of Ireland, in which she and her aunt resided. So when Sandra vanished without a trace on the night of December the 4th, 2000, her disappearance sent shockwaves through the community. Things like that didn't happen in places like this. During the search effort, which saw Sandra's stricken family go door to door, looking for anyone who could offer them information, it quickly became clear that Sandra's selflessness extended far beyond the Collins clan. There was the neighbour with joint pain, whom she brought shopping to once a week, the man she accompanied to doctor's appointments, whose prescriptions she would hand deliver upon request, not to mention her church-going companion, an elderly gentleman who could always rely on Sandra to save a seat for him at mass. In fact, it seemed like at every house they visited, They were greeted by yet another person who had a fond story to tell about the smiling woman with a heart of gold. Sandra had people who relied on her. She'd never let them down. Which begs the question, what happened to Sandra on that wet winter night? And who is responsible for her disappearance? I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, Sandra Collins. Sandra's disappearance wasn't the Collins family's first brush with tragedy. That came just six months earlier when James, the eldest brother, had an accident at work. He worked in Ballina, so which is about maybe 10 minutes out the road from Cross Malina, and he worked in a factory that made water coolers for, for um, hospitals or office blocks or whatever. That's Patrick, the fourth of the Collins siblings. So on the night of the 6th of June 2000, he went to work and um, he fell into the machine and he got his leg trapped and he was stuck there for, I think, three hours. And anyway, the decision was made to cut his leg off with a chainsaw by a fireman and he died on the way to the hospital, unfortunately. So suddenly I'd lost my big brother. 
Patrick remembers the funeral all too well. We were quite a private, you know, ordinary family. Like, we didn't have a load of friends or anything like that. And suddenly we were shaking hands with thousands of people. Do you know that I'd come because this was a tragic accident? It was, it was totally alien and sitting there and looking at him in the coffin and in his green suit. You know, I thought, oh my God, you look... He just looked like he was asleep, but I knew he wasn't, obviously. And I kept wondering, where was his leg? I remember that. I kept thinking, oh, I wonder where your leg went. Did they put it in the coffin? James's death was a terrible blow to his brothers and sisters. You know, not alone were we siblings, but we were each other's best friends as well. Raised in a small cottage in the town of Cross Malina, the Collins children learned the value of sharing early on. It was nothing elaborate. We didn't have en suites or anything like that. We had one bathroom and that was it. We had to share everything and we had to share rooms and beds. And But it was happy times. Like Their father's time was taken up with looking after their mother, who suffered from frequent seizures. We were taught from a very early age from toddlers, like, oh, this is what you do when anything happens, ma'am. So we weren't afraid of it, you know. We were taught how to put her in the recovery position and to stay with her and, you know... The older children, Sandra, James and Bridie, helped to raise the younger ones. I can remember us all walking uptown and um, the three older ones would hold our hands, the three younger ones, and we would be warned as small ones, you know, you're to do what Bridie and James and Sandra tells you, and if we were going uptown to buy an ice cream or something, you know, they, they were always, the, Bridie and James and Sandra were quite protective of us, you know, them being teenagers, really, when we came on the scene. Sandra embraced her role as the big sister. Her being the oldest, like she was a bit like a mother hen, you know, if you fell or anything, she'd be over watching you. And... Patrick has particularly fond memories of summers spent freely roaming the fields and woods around their home. We left during the day and we wouldn't be back until that evening. You know, the street lights was almost the, the time to say, come home, you know. So it wasn't, we had no mobile phones or it was just, it was a more freer time, but it was also um, it was a nice time, really, like it was a kind of a, there was an innocence about it, really. And the day's exploration would typically be followed by an evening of board games, which one family member in particular took very seriously. Oh God, yeah, you wouldn't want to play with Sandra Collins because the game wouldn't finish until she won, or you let her win, it was one of the two, because she was a sore loser and if you played cards with her nine out of ten times, the table would get tipped, so... Everybody just wouldn't win because if you didn't, there'd be war, you know, and we'd, it could be midnight and she'd still have to keep going until she won. Despite the occasional tiff over a game of Ludo, life was good in the Collins household. They cherished each other's company, which made Sandra's departure in 1988 to live with her aunt Anne O'Grady a bitter pill to swallow. So Anne was our aunt and she had rheumatoid arthritis and um, she was married and her marriage broke down and she was living in Westport and then she came back to Cross Malina to my grandmother and then she was living in Banla in a flat and they were on the summer holidays. It was before I was born and she just wanted a bit of help for the summer, you know, just because... She wasn't able to do very much, you know, like at that stage. And as the years went on, her disease got progressively worse. So Sandra said she'd go in for a couple of weeks. And then the couple of weeks turned into a few months and she just ended up staying there all the time then. 
Sandra and Anne moved into a house in Kilala, a quiet coastal village about 20 minutes by car from Cross Malina. Sandra was just 16 years old when she left home. She didn't attend secondary school and, looking after Anne, whose condition was extremely debilitating, soon became her full-time job. It was very aggressive, like her legs were bent, her, her fingers were bent, everything was bent. She was in a wheelchair for a while and Sandra used to push her in the wheelchair, like they go outside and she'd push her in the wheelchair for a while. And then she had operations done, she had her knees done and she had her toes straightened and she had her fingers straightened. Sandra and Anne's relationship, the family soon learned, was a rocky one. She would be quite tough, yeah, she'd be quite verbal and she'd be putting her down and she'd be knocking her confidence at every opportunity she could get, you know, like that. If she went to get her hair done, she'd say, oh, I don't know what you've done to your hair, but nobody will like you looking like that. Sandra took the majority of these criticisms on the chin, knowing as she did that they came from a place of pain. Perhaps sometimes her behaviour towards Sandra wasn't acceptable. Yeah, and I suppose maybe in a way life had made her a little bit bitter or, you know, kind of unfairly because... She wasn't born like that. She was quite a good-looking, stunning woman in her day, and I have pictures of her, and she was married and had a future planned, you know. So, like, she had gone through her own demons as well. I know, not condoning it, I'm just saying. Once a week, the Collins siblings would be reunited with their sister when she and Anne visited the family on Sunday evenings. And they would land up round seven, eight, and... um then it was all chat about the week and what had happened. And in the wintertime, you know, we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't be going outside because it was cold and wet and dark. But in the summertime, we'd be outside and we'd be playing games and she'd be asking us about school and she'd be plaiting Mary's hair and, you know, putting on nail varnish on her and, you know, that kind of a thing. They were probably some of the happiest times, really, when she came back to, to us, like to her family, to see us. Patrick always looked forward to Sundays if for no other reason than to watch Sandra struggle to get to grips with his latest computer game. We'd switch on the PlayStation and she loved Crash Bandicoot. Mind you, I don't think he loved her too much because she kept falling down the hole on her and she'd be getting thick at him and I'd be like, he can't hear you, Sandra, he doesn't know. But why isn't he jumping? And I said, because you need to press such and such, you know. But even at a young age, he could detect a twinge of sadness amidst the smiles and the laughter. I suppose she put on a brave face, she didn't want us to worry or to to be, you know, thinking about her and, um, you know, she would have said to mum and dad like that everything was rosy and they would have felt like that everything was fine as far as they were concerned. She was with Anne, so she wasn't with a stranger or we didn't really know, know the full extent of what was going on. From sunrise to sunset, Sandra's day was dedicated solely to looking after her aunt. Every now and again... When Anne went for a nap, she allowed herself the luxury of an afternoon walk. But that aside, there wasn't much time for socialising or anything else that a young girl her age might like to do. You know, Anne could be very controlling and domineering, so it was quite difficult on Sandra. Anne would have wanted to know where she was and what she was doing and who she was doing it with, so she'd have been keeping a kind of a a rein on what she was allowed to do, even though she was an adult. When I think about it, there might have been a lot of fear and anxiety from Anne's point of view that 
if Sandra went out and met somebody or, you know, um, fell in love or, you know, that she'd leave and then who'd look after her. So I suppose she was filled with a lot of anxiety and fear and that's not condoning it, but, you know, she controlled what Sandra did and when she did it and who she did it with. That first summer soon turned into a year, and in the blink of an eye, a decade had passed. Sandra's sister Bridie had a job and a boyfriend, whilst Patrick was getting ready to attend secondary school. Then, Sandra experienced a major life event of her own. Ten years after Sandra left home, she told us she was pregnant, and we were excited as a family and the whole lot, and... uh, then um, she had her baby and after six months um, she gave the baby away because she felt that it wasn't the right environment to be bringing up a child in and I think she felt, well I know she felt, under increasing pressure from my aunt and she was a good mum and she loved her babies just that she just couldn't unfortunately provide the things in life as she said herself to us that she wanted her baby to have, like a mum and a dad, and, you know, financial security, and offer the baby the opportunities that she desperately wanted it to have. And she decided to give the baby up for adoption after six months. Giving up her child was a heartbreaking decision for Sandra to have to make, especially as it was followed by James's death. And so the last few months leading up to her disappearance were difficult ones for Sandra, to say the least. So the last time we saw Sandra was the 3rd of December 2000, which was a Sunday night. And so I remember them coming up on that Sunday night and she was full of chat and, um, you know, you know, full of Christmas and what we were going to do. And it was our first Christmas without James. And the one, the last thing, one of the last things we spoke about was she wanted to buy a mobile phone and, um, then, as they were going to go home, my mother said to her, oh, you know, Sandra, we have your birthday cards here. And um, I think she said, oh, sure, I'll get them again, or don't worry about them, you know, because her birthday was the following week. But somebody, I can't remember who now, said, oh, you better bring them with you. Sure, they're, I think it was my father that said, oh, sure, they're signed now, Sandra, so you might as well bring them with you. So we gave them to her just before she left, and we kind of was like, oh, happy pre-birthday, if that makes sense. So she put my aunt in the front of the car and she got into the back of the car and they drove off down the Killala Road and I never saw her again. The first sign that something was wrong came when Bridie's phone rang on the afternoon of December the 5th. It was Anne O'Grady. Anne had waited up all night for Sandra to come home, so the next day she rang Bridie at work at lunchtime and said, oh, Sandra's gone out and she hasn't come back and I can't get a hold of her and no one knows where she is or whatever. So she didn't panic or she didn't think because she said she got dressed up and put on makeup and we thought maybe she was going out and not saying to Anne where she was going. Unusually, but it was a possibility. So... um, we thought, oh, she'll be back. So we finished school. We came home then at about four o'clock, and my mother said, "Oh, um, she didn't tell the sm- she didn't tell the two smaller ones, but she told me that Sandra had gone out, and 
hadn't come back and I was like, oh, that's unusual. And then I thought maybe that there might have been a row between the two of them or she'd stormed off or something. You know, that maybe Sandra had snapped back finally. And, but then, then that she would come back, like, that, you know, that there would be a phone call from Kalala to say, oh, Sandra's coming in now or whatever, or she'd have rang herself to say, look, I went to a party and I fell asleep or whatever the case may be. Given how hard things had been for Sandra, combined with Anne's often frosty demeanour, no one would have blamed Sandra for reaching the end of her tether and finally taking some much-needed time for herself. But at six o'clock that evening, when we rang again and Sandra wasn't there, they were like, mm, there's something wrong here now. So they went down, my mum and my dad and Bridie to Anne. And within the hour, they said it was time to ring the guards because they felt like that. She could be in some place that she was in danger or... We just didn't know what to think, but we were just terrified that this would have been so on her. Like, it was above anyone just to walk out and not come back. Her would be the last one in Kalala that you would expect. Because Anne had her under the thumb, you know. Before long, the police had arrived at Anne's home in Kalala. So then they just took details of what sound was wearing and where she said she was going and what she was doing and... Then it all kicked off from there, really. They spoke to Anne, as well as her neighbours, and slowly but surely, they began to piece together Sandra's last known movements. She was going downtown to get sausages for their tea and that she'd be back again later. This was at seven o'clock, so she went to the shop. She had a shower and she got dressed up and put on her makeup. Again, you know, she wasn't, that wasn't anything out of the ordinary for her either. Like, even though she wasn't going out, she loved her makeup and her clothes and, you know, so... I don't think it aroused Anne's suspicion, like, well, you're meeting someone. So she left the house to get sausages for their tea. And then she called into the old man who lived next door at number nine. And the plumber was there. And he was fixing something. And she said, do you want anything? And he said he did. So whatever she got him, I don't know. But she came back to his house with his messages, but she didn't go in next door to home, like. And she gave him his messages and his change and the receipt. And she said that she'd see him tomorrow. Sandra didn't have a phone, nor could she drive. Outside of her weekly visits to her family, the farthest afield she'd go was to the town of Ballinar, about 15 kilometres away, which she'd travel to by bus to do the shopping or collect Anne's pension. When the police suggested Sandra might have hitchhiked, her family quickly shot the theory down. Sandra never thumbed a lift with a stranger. Oh no, she'd never get into a car with a stranger. So um, if we, if she wanted to go to Ballina, she would get a lift with the post van and the woman was a postwoman. So she would wait by the post office to get the lift to Ballina if she missed the bus. She wouldn't stand on the side of the road and stick her thumb out. Oh God, no, she would never do that. Eventually, the authorities' door-to-door efforts yielded some results and they managed to locate the last person to see Sandra on the night of December the 4th. At 11pm that night after three and a half hours of wherever she was or with whoever she was with she walks into the takeaway and gets enough food for two people and walks out and crosses the road to go home but obviously she didn't come home and it was a wet December evening so she would have been wet she'd have been drenched, she'd have been whatever soaked I suppose to the skin but no, she was bone dry her coat was dry, 
her whole demeanor was like the usual. And actually the girl even commented that it wasn't like Sandra to order as much food because 9 out of 10 times she'd order a few chips and there was a bit of a restaurant attached to it. And she would sit there and eat the few chips and then she'd come along and Sandra would have left half of them and she'd be saying to herself, well that was a bit of a waste. So for her to be buying this large bag of chips was a bit unusual she thought. But she said her clothes were dry, she wasn't upset, she wasn't concerned, she wasn't distressed. Over the next few days, Sandra's family made daily trips to Kilala to check in on Anne, feed her pets, and most importantly, muck in with the search effort, which was now covering the town in its entirety. I suppose to put Kalala into context for people, it's it's not very big. It's not we're not talking about like Galway or Dublin or Castlebar or anything. So, you know, the word got out quite quickly that oh Sandra's missing. So there was guards around on the street. Again, unusual. I mean, there's no guards crawling streets of Kalala normally. And we were going up and down and we'd walk the pier and you know, we were going back to the house and we were you know, ringing like B&Bs and things in the area to see was she there and, you know, kind of thinking, you know, we rang the hospitals, obviously this is this is in the beginning, the first week, like, and we walked along the pier and we walked in around places that were derelict and, you know, calling out her name and, you know, I suppose not knowing where to search, but looking, feeling like we needed to do something ourselves as well as the guards. So there was a very... They were on the ground and we were on the ground immediately. Like within 24, well, certainly within, I would say, 48 hours. On the 6th of December, the searches began. So it wasn't like it was a week or 10 days or two weeks. We were there straight on it. She was reported on the 5th. We were on it on the 6th. And they were on it, to be fair. Whilst the family put up posters and knocked on doors, the police began searching the waters around Kilala Harbour. So they were on the pier early on, you know. And I remember them diving, looking for her, thinking, oh, please don't bring her up. Even though I knew in my heart and soul she wasn't there, there was always the fear that she, you know, I couldn't rule it out, obviously, or we couldn't rule it out completely, 100%. There was no guarantee. But it's funny because sitting here now today, uh, if I was to tell myself that 14-year-old, I'd be like, no, 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 you really wanted them to pull her up and... I just, I wish now they had, because then I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you, no disrespect meant to anyone, and that my mother would have known where she was and she wouldn't have been tormented. Five days after Sandra was last seen, a grim discovery was made. On the Saturday, the 9th of December, I had gone to a birthday party, and when I left, it was all, there was no, nothing. And when I came back, there was blue lights, there was guards there was it was like something out of a crime scene and I was like oh my god what's happened and um, then they said they'd found her coat and could we identify it and it was hers and the sausages were in the pocket. The maroon sleeveless fleece was undoubtedly Sandra's. She wore it all the time. Her family could have spotted her in it from a mile away but the fleece's sudden appearance raised more questions than answers. This coat, this fleeced coat, suddenly, out of thin air, miraculously appeared, dumped on the pier. So, 
where the court had been from the 4th of December or whatever you want to say, the 5th of December up until the 9th of December as anyone's guess, but it certainly wasn't on the pier because we certainly would have seen it. Sandra's family soon came to believe that the fleece was planted there. And I think it was to give the illusion that Sandra had committed suicide. Well, I don't think I'm sure, I'm certain of it. Like, locally, people would have said, oh, she lost her brother, she'd given away the baby for adoption, her life wasn't, you know, wonderful. We just went, mm, no, it just didn't, just didn't sit in with the way that we knew Sandra and how we loved her and the way she was with us. So we knew when my mother said that, my mother said, no, Sandra has not done that and she's not done anything to herself, no. And we, from the get-go, she believed and we believed that it was always planted there to make it look like something, like she'd done something, but she hadn't. The pockets of the fleece were searched and as well as the sausages, a note was discovered. There was two pieces of paper on in Sandra's handwriting and there was phone numbers on them. And uh, one of them had an abortion clinic in the UK. And that was that. It later emerged that Sandra had been pregnant at the time of her disappearance. This revelation, coupled with the number for an abortion clinic, created umpteen new theories about what fate had befallen Sandra. Had she fled to the UK to seek an abortion and never returned? Perhaps she'd sought out a procedure from an unlicensed provider and there had been complications. Or maybe she'd been unwilling to terminate a pregnancy and the father had taken truly desperate measures. Unfortunately, the discovery of the fleece and the notes inside were the last significant clues the police found in relation to Sandra's whereabouts. I suppose as time went on, then it just, how can you put it in a nice way, kind of just died, it died a death, I suppose, because people's lives went back to normal or whatever normal was. And you couldn't obviously sustain that level of looking in the beginning throughout. And suddenly the weeks turned into months. And I remember us moving the calendar from 2000 to 2001, and then the months went into years. And now the years are going into decades. So... But, like, we never stopped looking for Sandra. We never stopped searching for her and appealing and trying our own thing as a family and putting out appeals every year on her anniversary and on her, on her birthday. And But we had to try and live our own lives as well and deal with the everyday obstacles of life, you know, that was being thrown at us. Like, we were starting secondary school and um, Bridie you know, started her own family and, you know, she had her own kids who are adults now, actually, funnily enough, almost. Weren't even born and now they're grown men and women nearly. So we had to try and navigate and negotiate life as best we could without forgetting Sandra and trying to find her, you know. So we did our very best. Ten years later, there was a development. In 2010, her case had been upgraded from a missing person to a murder investigation after a new superintendent came to Ballina. And I suppose, you know, they had done new appeals and, you know, that's maybe, I suppose, the basis of it, that there was a kind of a new investigation for from 2010 till 2012 that, you know, people had changed statements and offered 
other bits of information that they mightn't have been forthcoming with in the beginning. Um, then in 20, 2011 and 2012, there was a number of arrests made and um, a file was sent away on the particular person and the DPP directed that um, there was a murder charge against somebody in 2012 for Sandra's murder, obviously. The authorities had identified a potential suspect. A trial date was set and the Collins family travelled together to witness the proceedings at Castlebar's Central Criminal Court. And then at the end of the five and a half weeks or six nearly, the judge directed that the jury acquit the person accused of Sandra's murder um, based on insufficient evidence. So um, that was that. Yeah, that was a tumultuous time for us and a traumatic time for all of us. Very difficult, obviously, you know. It was a devastating blow for the Collins clan. After years of being in the dark about what had happened to Sandra, they had been hoping the trial would deliver her justice and grant them some semblance of peace. But it wasn't to be. Eleanor, Sandra's mother, had died back in 2004. Her father, Joe, died of lung cancer a few years after the court case. Several weeks before his diagnosis, a plaque had been erected in Sandra's honour at the end of Kilala Pier. Her siblings appreciated the tribute, but it was by no means a substitute for a grave. Well, I think that was one of the biggest fears we had in doing it, that whoever committed this crime or whatever the case may be, they would have thought, oh, they're fine now, they're grand, they're away with it, they've got their closure, and that'll be good enough now for them. They'll accept that, that'll do them, but it's far from okay. Sandra was alive and she was murdered down there, and that... You know, her murderer and everything is still out there and her body is still out there and these terrible things happened. When I go to it, I think, God, I wonder how many people have come down here, Sandra, and looked at your picture and spoken to you or has anybody that knows anything or the anybody with any information, have they come down there and like gone to the plaque and, you know, spoken to her in a roundabout way? Amidst all the darkness, the Collins family had found their own unique way of bringing light back into their lives. In 2003, I suppose, my mum got sick with cancer and unfortunately she died the following year on us. So a couple of years later, maybe in 2006 or seven, my dad thought it'd be a nice idea to maybe illuminate our house in, I suppose, in memory of all that was gone and lost. And he thought it'd be a lovely idea to, to do it on Sandra's anniversary or to set you know to put them on on the 4th of December so it started off as small and then as the years went on it just kind of snowballed and got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and every year we raised money for charity and last year we raised a thousand euros for the NSWPCA here in Ballina or in Mayo like so because Sandra loved animals like um she absolutely adored any animal that was under the rising sun and i mean literally any animal we thought it'd be a nice gesture to raise money for them now we did my dad raised money for western alzheimer's and for cancer and so every year he used to say oh 
some way, somehow, it'll light the way home for her. So you can see our house from space, let's say. You know, a lot of people in the community come and they see it and it makes a lot of people's Christmases and we've been told that and I think she'd have loved the fact that, you know, through all the sadness that this something positive has come out of it and like I said that, but like that, out of something so dark and so horrible that this bit of light has, you know, been shone out and I suppose that's the thing that there's hope always, all the time and that even though there might be people that are trying to quench the hope and, you know, hope we'll go away looking for her. You know, we're trying our best and everything we can do to keep looking for her. We will and we won't ever give up. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. If you know what happened to Sandra, or you remember seeing someone like her on December the 4th, 2000, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Sandra Collins before listening to this episode, you could still help. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured on this podcast. There, you can join an online movement, one dedicated to supporting the investigations for all the cases we've covered, including the one you're listening to right now. Since the launch of The Missing Podcast, over 300 volunteers have joined community investigation teams led by Locate International. In the UK alone, there are over 12,000 long-term missing and unidentified people. To support Locate's efforts and to learn more about the vital work they do, visit locate.international where you can join the mission to help locate the missing. The series is also made in collaboration with the charity Missing People, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. You can reach them by calling or texting 116000 or by emailing them at 116000 at missingpeople.org.uk. We cannot say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Patrick hopes that the information will soon arrive to solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.